You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. All right, well, welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South Church. It is so good to see all of you here. See some people I haven't seen for a long time. Um, it's just so good uh, to be here that we can worship the Lord uh, together. My name is Tyler. If we haven't met, I'm one of the elders here at City Light South. We are in the middle of a series that we've that is called Gospel Fluency. Um, it's a series developed uh, around the book by the same name by uh, Jeff Anderstel. And we have developed, kind of laid this foundation of what is the gospel, the basics of the gospel, so that we learn the vocabulary and the grammar, just as if you were learning a new language and you were becoming fluent in that language, you've got to start with the basics. So we've laid that foundation. And then we've talked about what the gospel does in us personally, how the gospel has to be good news to us before it's good news uh, to others or good news to the world. Last week, we looked at the idea of the gospel in our minds, the gospel in our mind, that, that, that the way that God and his goodness changes you and changes me is it, 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 when we identify things, lies, untrue things that we believe, and then speak the gospel to those things. Speak the gospel to those things. And so we talked about how um, it's, a, it's, it's a battle and how we take thoughts captive and the whole idea of the armor of God is applied to that very battle that we're not actually battling with uh, fists and armor and people against people, but we're actually waging war against what the devil is doing by getting us to believe things that are not true uh, in our minds. So that's what we looked at last week. If you've missed uh, one of the sermons, you can always catch up. On the podcast, I hope you've been able to be plugged into a discipleship group where we are going through the same um, thing, same content week by week. Um, it's been real. Our DG has just had some fantastic discussions. It's been really good. I'm looking forward to the next few weeks. All right, today we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about food. Uh, the title of this sermon is The Gospel Around the Table. The gospel around the table. I wonder, um, just by starting out by, by show of hands, anybody in this room considered themselves a foodie? Anyone? No, one person. Two people. Okay, all right. I'm not. I like to eat. I wouldn't call myself a foodie. Um, this term has been around for a couple of decades now. Um, this, is, uh, this isn't described. A foodie isn't somebody who eats to live or even lives to eat. A, a foodie is a person whose passion... Uh, is food. Not just the taste of the food, but the look and the feel, um, the way the food makes you feel, the origin story of like every ingredient in the food. Um, foodie culture, so-called foodie culture, has permeated the world in large part due to the internet. When I was a kid and I wanted to try, or our family wanted to try a new recipe, here, here, here's the process. You go into the cupboard where the recipes are kept and you open that box and you sift through all the little pieces of paper that have been cut out from a magazine or passed down from your great-grandma and you tried that recipe. Today, if you want to uh, try a new recipe, you Google it uh, online and then you wade through about 8,000 words of backstory and all sorts of interesting trivia before you get to the actual recipe, and then you can get to work cooking. 
Food today isn't just about fuel um, or an enjoyable necessity. It's central to who we are, to who we, uh, how we identify and how we express ourselves. And while I think foodie culture can be a little bit over the top, there is some goodness in it all. There's some truth in it all. Food, the experience of food, or more specifically, the experience of a meal, is actually central to the story of our redemption, our salvation. In fact, you, you could even argue that the whole Bible begins and ends not with a battle, not with an embrace, but a meal. Well, let me tell you what I mean. Every aspect of this gospel story that we looked at, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, every single aspect of the story contains a meal. Well, let's start with the, the very start, Genesis 1, creation. He, God creates man and woman in his image, and then he puts them where? In the middle of a lush garden full of food. And he, he blesses them. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over all of creation and all of this food that you see around you. He tells them how they will be physically sustained so that they can rule, so they can represent him in this way. He says, look around you guys. Feast your eyes on all of this food that I have given you. He says, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. That's in the very first chapter of the Bible. And then the next chapter, Genesis 2, God says these words to the first man. He says, you are free to eat. Let's stop there. That's good. Those, that's good word. You're free to eat from any tree of the garden except one. One of the first things that God wants us to know about him is that he is a generous giver. And specifically, he's a giver of food. He's the sustainer of life. And how does he do it? Not by plugging you and I into the power grid somewhere, like in the matrix. Not by some mystical osmosis. God keeps us alive to rule for him by giving us apples and kiwi and dragon fruit and grains and potatoes to satisfy our God-given hunger. Think about, for a minute, the way that an apple, like a well-grown apple, feels when you eat it. What's the experience of eating an apple? It's, it's crisp, it's juicy, it engages all of your senses. And you, you know, you can know it's going to be sweet and juicy most of the time by the way it looks. There's something that your eyes do that are, is a part of that experience. There's the smell and the taste that hit you at the same time. There's the sound that it makes as you bite into it. It is a multi-sensory experience. But you know what makes that experience of eating an apple even better? Imagine that that apple came from a tree growing in your backyard. It's early autumn and that tree is just loaded with apples. What do you do in that time? Well, most of us, would you'd invite people around. You'd get other people in your house and neighbors and others to come enjoy the fruit that you could never get through on your own. Food is about community, right? It's best enjoyed with other people, which is why in Genesis 2, right after God gives Adam every tree in the garden except one and says, go eat, very next verse, he says, it's not good for man to be what? Alone. Think about the most memorable meal that you've ever had. What was on the menu? 
I bet you could still taste it in your mind. Chances are, if that meal truly was memorable, you weren't eating by yourself. You enjoyed that meal with someone, maybe a significant other, maybe someone in your family. You enjoyed it with somebody else, even if you weren't enjoying or eating the exact same dish. You shared an experience together, and that was a gift from God. It's how he sustains you for life on that day. See, every meal that you've ever had, whether it's two-minute noodles on the way out the door or living on a budget, or it's a five-course feast, every meal sustained you in some way. It was a gift that if you take long enough to reflect, you have a reason to worship God, to thank God. Food and community are built into the goodness of God's creation. Now, sadly... Our longing for food, our enjoyment of food, and community show up in the next aspect of the gospel story, and that being the fall. Here you have the enemy of God, the devil. He uses our longing for good food and good company to pull us away from God. That's how he pulled Adam and Eve away from God. You go back to Genesis again. Remember what God said to Adam? He said, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden but one. But then the devil comes, and he says this. He says, did God really say you can't eat? See, God said you can eat. The devil introduces can't eat from any tree in the garden. He twists the word of God to make Eve question God's goodness, question him as the generous giver. And that's how the first sin ever committed in history came to happen. It's the sin that alienated us from the giver and put us under the curse of sin and death. And it happened when? It happened at mealtime. It was shared by two people together in community. Adam and Eve came to want food and want community without having to say thank you to God for those things. They wanted to make themselves flourish on their own terms. And that might sound a bit weird or a bit off to you, but I want to show you how I get this from the Bible itself. Because Paul uh, is commenting on this whole episode In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, when he writes this, he says, For they knew God, and he's talking about Adam and Eve, but he's also talking about all of us humans. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. See, that's where the progression into sin starts. They didn't glorify him. They didn't show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. See, they thought they knew better than God. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. In other words, the gifts of creation eclipsed the giver of creation and shoved him aside. Adam and Eve were were precursors of all of us. For example, they were precursors of Esau, another character we see in the book of Genesis, who exchanged the blessing and all of the gifts of God for what? For one meal. For one meal. We often chase after sustenance and salvation and security wherever we can find those things. That's the heart of the fall. It's looking for the meal that we can enjoy without the maker. How does food and community show up then in the rest of the gospel story, in redemption and new creation? Well, Satan tempted us and pulled us away from God with a meal. 
Is it possible then that God might save us, redeem us, and bring us into new creation with an even better meal? I think so. In fact, that's exactly what he did. So if you have your Bible, open up now to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to look at one of the most significant meals in all of Scripture, in all of human history. Matthew chapter 26. It's the meal that we commemorate, that we reenact every single week when we gather for worship, the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to read from the CSB, Matthew 26, starting in verse 26 down to verse 30. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true and beautiful and good. Thank you that your word is sweeter than honey. Thank you that your word is satisfying. Lord, may we be satisfied by your word. May we feed on it uh, this morning. And we ask that you would help me to speak clearly and present it well and beautifully um, and help us to be good hearers and then doers of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the series that we're in, uh, Gospel Fluency, is all about bringing the truth of the gospel into everyday life. And what is more everyday, what is more routine than having a meal? You can avoid doing a lot of things in life, but you can't avoid eating uh, for very long and live. And that's by design. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We've, we've looked at this passage before. It's familiar to many of us. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Well, how do you do that? How do you eat and drink to the glory of God? The context of that verse is important. See, it's all about eating anything that might be served to you in any situation with thankfulness, with gratitude. Under the law of Moses, uh, there were uh, lots of rules about food. Certain foods were considered unclean and off-limits for the people of God. But then Jesus came along, and we read this in Mark chapter 7. He says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth uh, that makes you unclean because it's a reflection of what's in your heart. And he says that all foods are good for eating as long as you partake with thanksgiving to God, the giver of those foods, as long as you glorify him in the eating. So wouldn't it make sense then that every time we eat, that we take that God-given, built-in opportunity to reflect, to thank him for his faithfulness, to remember, to worship. See, Jesus taught us to pray these words, give us today our daily bread. And with every single mouthful, all five of our senses experience an answer to that prayer multiple times a day for most of us. 
It's evidence that you can taste and see and smell and hear that God is who he says he is, that he is faithful, that he is good. Does that sound strange? I mean, food is food, right? A meal is what we do after the church service is over. Are you saying that the worship service keeps going after we leave? Yeah, it does. A lot of us think, well, this is worship and that's food. That's a different, but it's not. It's all part of life. It's all an opportunity, an invitation to worship. See, in the early church, for the first couple of hundred years from the time Jesus rose from the grave um, and the church Christians would meet together, and we see this in Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at more closely next week, um, the worship service and the meal, the, the community meal that Christians had together was, all, was together. It wasn't separated. Do you know what they called the meal, the times that Christians gathered together? They didn't call it a, a church service. The, in the earliest days, in the, when they were still in the Roman Empire, they called it a love feast. That's what Christian meetings were called in the early days. Agape or love feasts. Because people would get together and over a meal. And the Lord's Supper that we celebrate was part of that meal. It was just in the middle of the meal, just like we see it in, when Jesus is eating the Passover meal. And then in the middle of it, he says, do this in remembrance of me. It was all together as a whole thing. The food that the early Christians shared together was not just the bread and the wine. It was more than that. It was a full meal. And it wasn't just practical. It wasn't just like, man, we, we're all hungry. We got to eat together. So we might as well, you know, kill two birds with one stone. No, they loved being together. There was something sacred, something significant about Christians eating a meal together. It's not an accident that the central symbol of our worship gatherings is a meal. Or it's a picture of a meal. The, the, as I said before, the very first Lord's Supper was a part of the Jewish tradition of the Passover meal. And it was all highly symbolic. See, the Passover meal was a, to remember, it was to reenact how God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt. And so now we have the true and better Passover meal that we celebrate together. It's how reenacting how God saves his people from slavery to sin every single day, which is why we have this meal every week. It's a ceremony of remembrance and worship, and, and Jesus redefines it. So now Jesus himself is, is at the very center of this meal. So let's, let's look at the text. Starting in verse 26, Jesus says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. Now, this was unleavened bread, bread without yeast, and it was part of the Passover meal because on the original night when they escaped from Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry, so they didn't have time to put yeast in the bread to, to make it rise overnight. So they ate unleavened bread, and Jesus takes this bread, he starts breaking it up, he starts ripping it up and distributing it to the disciples who were there at the table with him. It's, it's, a, it's an invitation to remember all the other times in the Bible and in our lives, when God distributes bread, distributes food to his people. If you know the story of uh, the Israelites after they escaped from slavery in Egypt, they ended up in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. And every single day, every single day without fail, God fed them. With what? The manna, the bread 
from heaven. It, it was a miracle, but it was a sign to them that God is faithful, that he was with them. And then there's in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you know, there's only one episode, one story, one miracle story that is found in all four Gospels. You know what it is? It's the time when Jesus fed a multitude of thousands of people with just a few small loaves of bread and fish. He put that right at the very center. And because it was so significant of him saying to not just his 12 disciples, but the whole world, I am the giver of life. In fact, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me, and John said this explicitly, or Jesus says it in John's gospel, anyone who eats of this bread will live and not die. And, you know, when he says this, the people are like, man, I want this bread. And Jesus is like, I am this bread. I'm like, what? We have to eat your flesh? That's weird. And, and, and that was that people were wrestling with this idea for the first time. For us, it's kind of like familiar. We've made it so familiar. We it's not as shocking as it sounded to that original audience. So whenever you eat now, you have an invitation, not just at the Lord's Supper, but any meal. You have an invitation to remember Jesus as the giver of life, as the bread of life, as the giver of new life. Every meal in some way is a rehearsal for the big meal that he's preparing us for us in heaven. So let's learn to be thankful now. So when we eat, not only do we get to remember and worship Jesus as the giver and sustainer of life, we remember in that moment that we are in fact in the presence of God, that he is with us. Just like the Israelites in the desert, every morning they would go to gather the manna and they would be like, you know, God's here. God is here because there's no other explanation for this. There's no manna plant. No, God is here. And that's exactly what Jesus captures in the Lord's Supper in verse 26 when he holds up the bread, the broken bread, and says, this is my body. Now, in Luke version of this, and 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll read in a moment, we get the added phrase, this is my body, which is given for you, or which is broken for you. Uh, in Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus is just recorded saying, this is my body. This is my body. Um, but Jesus can say this, because, you know, if I said that to you, if I held up a piece of food and said, this is my body, you'd be like, that's weird. But Jesus can say it because of who he is. He's already said, I am the bread of life. He, he, he's already identified himself as the creator and giver of life, the one who created the cells that became the grain, that became the bread, the one who created the cells that became his own body. And he is the bread sent from heaven that gives life to the world. He is the new and better manna. And he's also, at this part, remember, in the Passover meal that they're eating, he is the new and better Passover lamb. You see, because in the original Passover, they didn't just eat the unleavened bread. They all slaughtered a lamb. Passover is meant to commemorate the day when lambs were slaughtered all over the nation of Egypt, and their flesh was consumed and every household that received and consumed the broken body of the lamb was saved from death and slavery. 
the one time when Jesus really made his audience squirm is when he said this. He says, if you want to have eternal life, you have to eat my flesh. That doesn't mean we're cannibals, although Christians have literally been accused of that in the past because of these words of Jesus, because of the, the communion meal. And, and we don't go as far as our Catholic friends who say that when we take the communion, we actually are, that somehow the elements are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. But we do say that whenever we receive these symbols of his body and his blood, that we are in that moment by the Spirit transported into the presence of the risen Jesus, whose body, whose actual body is still intact in heaven, and whose actual body we will be in in proximity to when we are with him at the table. And so even now, even in our normal meals, every single one is an invitation to remember that you, in that moment, are always in the presence of the Lord Jesus. I wonder if any of you have any recipes that you've cooked before. And you, you could cook them in your kitchen, but even though it's in your kitchen, wherever that happens to be, that at the moment you start cooking, at the moment you smell it, the moment you taste it, you're transported to somewhere else. Maybe it's something that you learned uh, to cook or you experienced while on holiday somewhere, living in some other part of the world. And, and, and just the, the smell and the spice and everything just takes you to that place. Or, or, or maybe it's something that you uh, remember from your, your childhood. I mean, I've got you know, a recipe for uh, uh, Christmas cookies that if I were to taste those cookies, I wouldn't be in Adelaide. I would be in the kitchen that I grew up in, in that moment. Whenever you eat, see, remember that you are in that moment transported into the presence of Jesus who distributes his body to you as real food. Now in verse 27, it says, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, This cup that Jesus took is a part, again, of the Passover meal. It was a traditional part of the meal. Um, In the traditional Passover meal, there are four uh, cups of wine that are offered, kind of like you would, you know, raise a glass at a wedding and, you know, insert after certain speeches. There was kind of a set expected time that these cups would be offered and passed around the table. And the third of these four cups was called the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing. The traditional blessing that you would speak as you share this cup and pass it around, it corresponds to a promise that we find in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. And here's the promise, that with this cup of blessing, we, that God will, with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, save or redeem his people. And so on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he raised up this cup of blessing in front of his closest Friends, those who the very next day would witness him beaten and nailed to a cross. And he passes it around the table and he commands them. He says, every single one of you drink from this one cup. This is the blood of my covenant. This is the new covenant wherein God will forgive people their sins. And that covenant comes into effect only with the shedding of blood. Not with the the blood of a Passover lamb that was painted on the doorposts of the people so that they would be saved from death, but by the very blood 
of the true and better lamb, the son of God, Jesus himself, the lamb who was crushed for our sins. And it's by the wounds inflicted on this lamb that you and I and all who believe are healed. Uh, Last week, when we were um, gearing up for the uh, Acts 29 conference, um, I was invited on the Wednesday to a lunch, um, sorry, the Thursday, um, with a cohort of other Acts 29 pastors from around Australia. And we started out going to this little seedy burger joint on uh, Hindley Street. And, and it, was, it was Don Redden, I can call him out. He, he walked by and saw us all in there. And he's like, what are you guys doing in there? You can go anywhere. Don't go there. Go some, somewhere nice. Like, well, okay, Don said it, so we got to do it. Um, And so we walked a few hundred meters down the road to Peel Street. Um, I don't know if you've been there. There's a lot of different restaurants and cafes along that laneway. Um, And we sat down outside this place that someone recommended. And because none of us had been there before, we asked the guy who was waiting our table to just recommend, just what do you recommend? There's seven of us. You just, you, you pick for us. And so he did. He ordered a bunch of stuff, and it was all stuff to share. We were all sharing all these big plates. And the first main dish uh, to come out was the lamb shoulder. And let me tell you, this was not your typical lamb roast. I don't care how good yours is, this was better. It really was. It was cooked to absolute perfection. It was mixed with greens and, and fry or baked flatbread and harissa. And all seven of us enjoyed this meal and agreed this is the best lamb that we have ever had, which is a big call. We had a lot of other food as well. So at the end of the meal, um, we were all kind of discussing and wondering how much this was going to be per person because we didn't look at the menu very carefully. And you get kind of nervous in that moment in a meal when you're like going, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover this. That nervousness disappeared, though, at the same time that the organizer of said meal also disappeared and then reappeared to tell us that the meal had been paid for. It had been paid for. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're a bit nervous and then somebody comes to tell you that it's been taken care of. It's a good feeling. See, friends, the lamb that was provided for you and for me has been taken care of by someone else. The broken body and the poured out blood of the lamb, Jesus, is a free gift. And so you and I, we we not only have our sins forgiven on the basis of that gift, on the basis of that sacrifice and that covenant promise, We not only have our sins forgiven, we have the lamb. We have the lamb himself who once was dead and is now alive. Who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Who now sits and will sit at the head of the table where every man and woman who trust in the lamb and feed on the lamb will one day sit free of charge, every cost paid for by our generous Father. That's the gospel in a meal. Every meal we eat now, especially the meal we eat together every Sunday, in some way transports us into the very presence of Jesus. And we we remember that he is the giver of life and new life. We remember that we're in his presence. We remember that by his broken body and poured out blood, that we are rescued from the curse of sin. And now finally, whenever we eat, we remember that we have a booking. 
We have a booking at a great feast, the great feast, the feast of the Lamb in heaven. Listen to Jesus again here, verse 29 of Matthew 26. He says, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus, as I said, his body is physically now in the realm of heaven. We have his spirit with us here, but his body is there. One day, there will be no more separation. We will all be there. We'll all be united together. Not only with him, but with every believer who has ever lived from every people group around the world. Revelation 19, at the very end of the Bible, it depicts the end of history as we know it. I said the Bible begins and ends with a meal. Well, here's the end. Revelation 19, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And, and that wedding feast, that picture, that vision that John has there is really just an echo of an earlier vision uh, from the prophet Isaiah that we read about in Isaiah 25, 800 years before the vision of Revelation. We, we see this. Here's what Isaiah sees. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death, once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that's not just because Jesus likes to eat, although I believe he does. This whole picture, in some way, if you see it this way, it's like one giant troll of the devil. Because the devil thought that he could undo all of the goodness and majesty and beauty of God's creation with a snack. God says, not only did you not succeed, I'm going to prepare a meal for my sin-stained people. And first, they're going to feed on my son, the lamb, who was slain for their forgiveness. And then they're going to feed on choice meat and fine wine. And I myself am going to wait on them and wipe their tears. And afterwards, we're all going to sing together about the new and better meal that is Jesus Christ. I want to finish with just this final word. You know, every time we eat, whether we're scraping the bottom of the leftovers barrel or we're dining out at a five-star restaurant, see, every meal is an invitation to worship, to remember the gospel, that Jesus is creator, he's giver of life and new life, that we are, through the Spirit of God, in his presence whenever we eat or drink, that we've been rescued from the curse of sin and death by feeding on Christ alone. And then we have a booking at the best restaurant, the best feast in the history of food. A feast that has been prepared not by celebrity chefs, but by the God of the universe. The one who created water and fire and smoke and spice and sweetness and umami and every savory flavor that there is. A lot of us, we have seasons in this life where we feel like we're dining on sand. Our bodies fail us. Um, even our ability to taste and see and smell wears out over time. Other people fail us. We fail ourselves. The world fails us. But God 
will never fail. And every meal is an opportunity to remember that and to believe that, to trust that, even when we don't see it with our eyes in that moment. See, we've been talking about gospel fluency and how we become fluent in the gospel. We've got to bring it out of the clouds. We've got to bring it out of just the 60 minutes that we gather together and into the everyday stuff of life and every moment. Let every moment be an opportunity, an invitation to remember and to worship. And see, what's more memorable? What can be more memorable than a big plate of food shared among friends? This is my challenge. See, whenever somebody invites you to a meal, whether it's just a run to Macca's or a home-cooked meal in a kitchen, it's, it, it's an invitation to remember the event of the gospel. And, and some, of, some of you, and I do this as well, we pray for opportunities to share the gospel. What if that opportunity was just as simple as sharing a meal or a coffee with someone, and then having to, the courage to eat that meal in light of the meal that's coming, the one in heaven. There are not many people in the world that would turn down the offer of a free meal. And yet that's exactly what the gospel is. Now, just like we do every Sunday, I want to invite everyone who believes that Jesus is Lord, everyone who is a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to, to come to the table and eat. You're free. You once were not free, now you are free to eat because of what Jesus has done. This is the meal that reverses the curse of the ungodly snack in the garden. Let me read the familiar words of Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're here this morning or you're joining us online or on the podcast and, and you're not a Christian or you're not sure, let me say that in, in, in obedience to the Lord and the host of this meal to remain where you are. But let me tell you this, the invitation to come to the table and eat is an open one. It's an, it's an invitation to come and confess and say, admit that you've chased after other meals, other loves, that you've tried to live your truth and find your own way, and that everything you've done has turned up empty. You've turned away from God, but he has never turned away from you. He's pursuing you even right now. Whether you're with us here in this room or whether you're joining us online, as soon as you believe, as soon as you leave everything to follow Christ, you have a place at the table. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. For those of you who believe already, then this meal is for you. It's for you. It's an invitation to remember, an invitation to worship. So 
Let's come now and do that as we do every week. Let's do it together and let's do it with joy. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your table. Thank you that this is a symbol, uh, an, an experience, a moment of worship that looks forward to that moment when we will be with you forever. Never again separated. Never again removed from just seeing and smelling and hearing and tasting your goodness every single moment. Lord, we thank you that we did not earn that right to be at that table by our goodness or anything that we have done, but that right was earned for us by your obedience, Jesus, your goodness, your sacrifice, your suffering. Lord, we look to you now in this meal, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.